This episode contains references to sex, so it might not be suitable for younger listeners. Tucked Away a Microfiche at the State Library of Victoria is the biography of one British immigrant to early Melbourne. Born at sea in 1849, she was suitably named in honour of the voyage. Christened Annie after the captain's wife, the newly born baby of the Robb family was also given the middle name Tasman after the ship. But there was more onboard drama for the Robbs to come. Only a week after Annie's birth, the Tasman encountered another vessel while sailing off the coast of Central Africa. But not just any vessel. According to Annie's biography, for three days the captain was pursued by a boatload of pirates. Fortunately, the cargo and passengers on board were left unharmed, thanks to the ingenious plan of the ship's captain. Here's what Annie's biography says happened. The captain ordered the women on board to don men's clothing and parade the deck with the men, thus exaggerating the strength of the company. The buccaneers drew off without risking an encounter. Welcome to Dead and Buried Podcast, a new series that delves deep into the underground history of Melbourne. We're not afraid to put on the white gloves ourselves and delve deep into the city's dusty records and relics to find details others might have missed. Details that showcase a strange, lost Melbourne, illuminating our rich and gritty past. I'm Lee Hooper. And I'm Carly Godden. That's a pretty cute story, Carly. A pirate robbery foiled by a spontaneous costume party. But who did you say wrote this again? I didn't. It was Annie's grandson who penned it almost 90 years later, in 1937. Oh, okay. Well, like I said, it's a pretty cute story. But you can't just take it at face value, right? There's got to be some kind of corroboration for it to be believed. True, and that's how I found myself at two in the morning, pouring through a digital copy of the Shipping Gazette. It's a news source which documented journeys and departures via sea. Not usually the most thrilling of reads, I have to say. But I did get pretty excited when I found the report on the 1849 Tasman voyage and then read this particular sentence. I'll read it out for you. July 14. A suspicious schooner full of men ran alongside within two cables' length, but then sheered off when they observed the number of hands on board, among whom the captain was about to distribute arms. Okay, suspicious schooner. Well, that's pretty convincing evidence that there were pirates eyeing off the Tasman on its way to Melbourne. Pretty great. I know, it's so cool. But as to the cross-dressing aspect, well, I'm not so sure about that. Yeah. The shipping news comes agonisingly close to confirming it, but not quite. It does say that the guys on the suspected pirate ship were scared off by the number of people on board, though. But it's the weapons that are nearly handed out by the captain. There's nothing there about men's trousers being given out to the ladies. Right, and I couldn't find any other news source to confirm this cross-dressing aspect. So either it was basically BS, made up by Annie's parents, or it was left out of any official reporting for a reason. second episode looks at cross-dressing in colonial Melbourne with the help of the president of the Lesbian and Gay Archives, Dr Graham Willett, and theatre historian, Dr Mimi Colligan. Can you explain what we mean by cross-dressing? Well, we're using the word cross-dressing as it was used in that historical period. 
We do recognise that current views about dress and gender in Australia are far more enlightened and diverse today, so apologies if we sound a bit naff. While not an everyday thing, acts of cross-dressing like the one in our pirate story weren't completely unheard of either. This kind of clothes swapping was much more common in colonial Melbourne and Australia than you might first think. We know that there are men and women who cross-dress full-time, and in one or two cases, it wasn't until someone died that the people around them discovered that their birth gender was different to the one presented to the world. But just to be clear, although it was often taken up by people who might now identify as LGBTQI, this wasn't always a reason for cross-dressing. But before we look at some examples, let's talk crinolines. Yay, crinolines! What are crinolines? A kind of stiff petticoat that made a skirt stick out, giving a person a shape, kind of like a bell. Ding, ding. I wish you could say like a bell end. Like a bell end. <laughs> like a dick skirt. Like a dick skirt. Right. <laughs> okay, great. Crinolines actually tie into our main story, and it's about a character known as the Great Eastern, who did wear crinolines and wound up in some pretty dire circumstances. So to clarify, is that their legal name or nickname? Well, the Great Eastern was also known as Ellen Maguire. So Ellen Maguire is their legal name? Well, no, but we'll come to that. Dad and Barry took to the streets of Fitzroy in inner Melbourne. We retraced the steps where the action took place, and lucky for us, we managed to land a pretty decent tour guide. My name's Graham Willett. I'm a historian. I do Australian gay and lesbian and more recently uh, queer history. I'm Melbourne born and bred. I got involved in gay and lesbian politics, as we'd have called it then, back in 79 when I first came out. And I was already interested in history, having been a history student at uni. And the two kind of came together. I got interested in the history of the movement, uh, which at that stage went back to 1969-70. So I was always interested in the political history. Uh, and then that kind of expanded to the social and cultural history of queer life in Australia. So, we're standing on the corner of Victoria and George Street, which is where our story starts. Looking around, we can see the remnants of Fitzroy. A lot of it has endured. There are rather grand two-storey terraces. There are small, single-storey workers' cottages. There are pubs and shops on the corners. There's a lot of cars everywhere, which wouldn't have been true in the 1860s. And, of course, spent a lot of building. But other than that, you can see the kind of skeleton of, of old Fitzroy still there. So it's the evening of Saturday, October the 10th in 1863 and here on the corner a policeman, John Jones, approaches a man and a woman who are in conversation. It's evening, it's not considered suitable that women should be standing around on the street corners talking to men and Constable Jones approaches. He clearly thinks there's something suspicious and he almost certainly thinks the woman is a prostitute. At this point the woman, Ellen Maguire, picks up her crinolines and runs screaming down the street, uh, down Victoria Street, round the corner, with Constable Jones in full pursuit. Eventually he tackles her, knocks her to the ground, grabs her and arrests her. He then starts marching her towards Fitzroy Police Station. Uh, she makes several attempts to escape, eventually gives up hope that she's going to be able to do this and suddenly announces, you might as well know I am a man. My name is John Wilson. This wasn't the first time John Wilson had found himself in chains. On the government records we have about this incident, 
it says that Wilson was a convict who had been sent to Tasmania on the vessel Rodney from Plymouth, England, about ten years earlier. What Wilson did to find himself transported to Australia, or where or how he lived before then, however, is a bit of a mystery. It seems that he fudged or lied about some of the details, maybe about his name or which ship he had come on, because there's no John Wilson who matches his description listed aboard the ship Rodney for that period in the convict records. And that's frustrating. Yeah. Still, it's very likely that whatever Wilson did, he must have had a pretty rough time in his convict days before his arrest as Ellen Maguire. Let's return to Graham Willett back in Fitzroy. John Wilson is arrested for vagrancy, which is a very convenient or catch-all kind of offence, which police can use for almost anything. It's not a very serious offence. Under normal circumstances, dressing as a woman, which is certainly a breach of social norms, would have been caught under the laws of vagrancy. He could have expected to have a fine levied on him. As indeed, had he been Ellen Maguire as a prostitute, she would have expected to have a fine levied on her under the same offence, really. John Wilson having been charged with vagrancy, clearly wasn't conscious of any great danger. He, in fact, asked Constable Jones to go to his, that is, Wilson's house, because the man with whom he shared the house was out. Wilson had the keys, and he didn't want Moody, the man he shared with, to be locked out. The police did, in fact, go to the house. They went in, uh, and there they found that, although two men lived there, there was only one bed. They also found what they described as women's clothes and what they described as pornographic photos, which have not survived in the court record, so we don't actually know what they were. Standing on Young Street, we actually know his address, Wilson's address and the house he shared with Moody at number 30, but it's gone now. Um, The university has replaced it. There are a lot of very modern buildings in this street, but you can certainly see the little workers' cottages, which are probably the sort of place he lived in. The site now is uh, occupied by the Catholic University, uh, which has a a branch here in Melbourne. It's probably not something they're ever really going to want to celebrate. (laughs) So at first, the situation doesn't seem all that bad for Wilson. But as Graham explains, things are about to move pretty quickly and in a pretty bad way. By the end of the weekend, so this is Saturday night, by the end of the weekend, the police have started to launch... Uh, a deeper investigation, it seems clear that they were getting reports from people that all was not as it seemed, that John Wilson was not engaged in some kind of harmless masquerade, but was in fact a prostitute, uh, but a man who was picking up men while dressed as a woman. And this was a very much more serious matter. At this point, things start to become more interesting for the police. And over the next few weeks, it's clear that they are actively seeking to find out what's going on in John Wilson's life. Over the course of those weeks, they take evidence from seven different, mostly young men, who admit in giving their their, their witness statements to the police that they had engaged in sexual conduct with Ellen Maguire. These are really interesting testimonies. Although only one of them is ordered into the court to give evidence, we actually have the full statements by all seven. They admit to having had sex with Ellen Maguire. They admit, generally speaking, that they had paid for that sex. Usually they only had sex the once. 
and it was a fairly brief encounter. But all of them, all of them claim that they didn't know Ellen Maguire was a man. This seems almost inconceivable to us, of course, but in fact sexual practices then, as described and what we know about them as historians, were very different to what they are now. It was always dark. Most of these houses were lit by candles, which were generally blown out. People, by their own admission, usually engaged in sex while fully dressed. Um, and people were less knowledgeable in those days about the bodies of other people and of the other sex than we take for granted. There's also, of course, the fact that these seven young men had good reason to lie. Sodomy, that is sex between men, was illegal and it was a capital crime. You could be executed for engaging in sodomy. And so, collecting their evidence, the police either consciously or unconsciously encouraged these men to give evidence, but allowed them to protect themselves by saying, I didn't know it was a man, and therefore, by implication, although I may have committed sodomy, I didn't know it. And that, of course, would protect them to, to a great degree from prosecution. With these testimonies collected... Wilson's secret was about to be exposed. But what about the opinion of the Fitzroy locals? Would they be appalled? Or did they always suspect that the woman they knew as Ellen Maguire was not who she appeared to be? Ellen Maguire was certainly a well-known figure around Fitzroy. She was known to many as the Great Eastern. And while we don't actually know what this means, it is a striking fact that just about that time the British had launched what was then the largest ship ever launched, known as the Great Eastern. So we have this vision of Ellen Maguire, who certainly wore voluminous crinolines, uh, sort of wafting down the street in the way that an ocean liner might waft across the waters. That's the best we can do. But she was certainly well known. She was known for her, we would say, I guess, inappropriate behaviour. She would accost men in the streets... Um, inviting them to pay to have sex with her uh, and was generally thought of as a sort of undesirable character. Certainly some people claim to have always thought that she was a man and even the people who didn't say that were known to talk about her as a big woman Um, and that was a slightly kind of suspicious fact for them. She could in fact have been a big woman so they weren't pushing the point But looking back, a lot of them started to say that they'd always had their suspicions. Now, whether they had or not, and whether anybody cared or not, is a really interesting question and something we're not going to know. On the 19th of October, 1863, Wilson is charged with sodomy. His trial commences later in December to great public fanfare. It was such a sensational case. Um, You know, word spread really rapidly after the arrest on the Saturday night. Uh, The investigation went on for months until finally the the court case happened. Uh, And when it did happen, four or five hundred people would turn up trying to get into the courtroom, the Supreme Court, to watch the proceedings. It was a bit like reality TV, but only, you know, real. Um, And this, it was the sort of thing people must have been talking about all the time. Wilson's trial concludes, and sadly, the outcome is fairly predictable. Wilson is swiftly convicted by a jury. His sentence, death. The judge, this was all taking place in the Supreme Court because it was a very serious crime. The judge was the Chief Justice, William Stahl, and he spoke of the horror that people would have felt um, 
in, in relation to Wilson's behaviour, particularly because he had lured young men uh, into a situation where they were betraying their own values and morals. Wilson is condemned to be hanged, but he has one last resort. The very next day, presumably on the advice of his lawyer, because he had a lawyer, Wilson writes to the governor, who has the power to commute a sentence from death to a lesser penalty, uh, and he does so. And so we actually have his own statement about what he thought was going on. And there is a more or less incomprehensible description of how he uses a handkerchief, which we assume is a very large handkerchief, wrapped around his body, um, held in place by a, a string or a ribbon, uh, which covers his anus entirely and kind of seems to reproduce what a vagina might have felt like. It's a, a, we've read it, we've talked about it, we've tried reenacting it, we can't make it work, but that's just his description. You can imagine the state of mind he's in. But what he's doing is saying, look, I never committed an act of buggery, and therefore I'm not guilty of sodomy. I may be guilty of... I, I, he says, I am guilty of a gross indecency, and you know, I deserve to be in prison, but I don't deserve to die. Maybe that's what the governor took account of. Well, it's hard to imagine the governor getting through this description, this lurid description of his sexual practices um, and drawing you know, happy conclusions from it. But it's, a, it's an extraordinary moment in the history of sexuality that needs to be, deserves to be a lot better known than it really is. So the, um, the governor did, in fact, commute his sentence. He was sentenced to life in prison uh, at hard labour the first three years of which would be served in chains. Uh, hard labour is bad enough. Hard labour in chains must have been a terrible, terrible experience. Um, there was a week between when he was sentenced and when it was actually commuted. So again, you know, that's relatively rapid turnaround. Um, it would be interesting to know what the governor and council thought about it. But, but certainly that the penalty was harsh enough, you know, the, the life imprisonment. He then is sent to Pentridge. Uh, there are eight reports on his prison record of misbehaviour of various kinds, disobeying orders, talking in ranks, having tobacco. All these are offences for which he's given little penalties of various kinds. The most interesting one, I think, is the, the offence of being in the WC, that is, in the toilet, in suspicious circumstances. I like to think of John Wilson as, you know, rising above all this and maybe having one last crack at it um, because, in fact, he does, in fact, die in prison uh, after only six years. He dies in July 1869 uh, in what's described as a disease of the large intestine. So the hard life of prison would certainly not have done anything at all um, and the kind of minimal health care that he would have got there would have done nothing at all to relieve his suffering uh, or to save his life. John Wilson was the only man in Australian history ever sentenced to death for sodomy. In Victoria, the death penalty remained on the books right up until 1949. But not all forms of cross-dressing in colonial Victoria were carried out in fear of retribution. For example, a young man caught parading in silk skirts in town late at night could just say he had come from a costume party. Cross-dressing was an incredibly popular theme for parties and even church fundraisers into the 1800s. Men also got away with it in the theatre. But then again, so did the ladies. 
We wanted to know more about this connection between cross-dressing and the theatre. So I called historian Dr Mimi Colligan, and even though she thought Dead and Buried much too dark a name, she was still kind enough to speak with me anyway. I was blown away by her knowledge of colonial theatre and how she could recall all the actors of the period and which parts they played. Here she is explaining how cross-dressing was used to both entertain and satirise. Popular entertainment at that period um, was something called burlesque. Nothing to do with the bump and grind that you might think of from the 1930s. And it wasn't sleazy, depending on what you mean by sleazy, but it was a burlesque, meaning it was a satire, a parody of, of a serious play. And one serious play was The Lady of Lyon. It was a, a romantic comedy, but quite sad, sort of, where the young man uh, loves the young woman but her father won't let him marry her. He goes off to the wars and comes back and he's he's now quite affluent and she doesn't recognise him. And finally they recognise and it's all very, very nice. Well, in, in the parody, in, in the burlesque, you'd have a nice, leggy, pretty, soubrette, jolly type of, of young woman would play in tights and she would play Claude Melnot, the hero who went away. Uh, Pauline would be played by a, a rather stocky uh, gentleman and it, it'd be a joke. Uh, again, all that turning the world upside down. Parts in which women played male characters were called breeches roles. Often these characters were quite serious, such as Hamlet or Romeo and with serious costumes, examples of which you can see on our website. But when I asked Mimi what the main appeal for the audience was of these breeches roles, she came back with a one-word answer for me. Legs. We're seeing middle-class and upper-class women in great crinolines, respectable working women, waitresses and washerwomen and all of that. They wore skirts. Uh, And you didn't see a leg or a limb. And so when you saw these limber young women in rather boring-looking sort of shorts and boots, though. It's all very erotic somehow, or it was back then. Alongside burlesque, you also had the pantomime. This supposedly more PG-rated version was a musical stage production which featured songs, slapstick routines and dancing. At that time, every single pantomime shared this one trademark feature, Amazons. In just about every pantomime, there'd be the equivalent of the March of the Amazons, countless young women walking on stage. Going to see the pantomime when it was traditionally performed around Christmas or New Year's was a family event in Melbourne. And it was exciting for every member of the family, but for very different reasons. It's well known that the paterfamilias, the father would take his children from eight to about 11, and the kids would would love to see all the the colour and the so on. And, and, and father was there looking at all these curvaceous chorus girls. And so the, the word is titillation. But what about beyond the theatre? There are a few cases we know of in colonial times where women cross-dressed out in society and actually lived, worked and even married as men. When such news got out, the public devoured it. For some, the onset of invasive and voyeuristic public attention had tragic repercussions. However, Marion Bill Edwards used this notoriety to personal advantage. In April 1905, 
Marion Bill Edwards was arrested for burglary when found in a hotel at 3am. Marion had been working in the hotel, but as a barman. Yeah, but she wasn't supposed to be there after hours. Her excuse was that she was trying to catch a prowler. Following her arrest, Marion ran off to Queensland out of fear that her sex would be discovered. Eventually, though, she was acquitted of charges and returned to Melbourne. Once her impersonation had been discovered, she became famous. As Bill Edwards, Marion married Lucy Minahan in 1900 at St Francis Church in Melbourne. She also published a memoir, and if you look at it, it's illustrated with photographs of her posing in men and women's attire. Pretty wild for then, I guess. Yeah, and she even found work as a half-time act at the Melbourne Cyclorama, a kind of show which featured enormous 360-degree paintings of epic scenes. Marion Bill Edwards, you've read about her. Oh, well, need I say more? Yes. Uh, Well, she claimed that she became a a barman rather than a barmaid because she could earn one pound instead of uh, ten shillings, half a pound, as a barman than she could as a a barmaid. And um, she got on all right and she was still living in my time, not that I was too young to to take her (laughs) uh, microphone out to her. But she also was persuaded to do some showbiz and she was at the Cyclorama, which was another of my interests, um, and she was sharpshooting there because when they weren't showing this huge painting, uh, they had boxing and they had Marion Bill Edwards there in the 1915s. When it comes to the relationships Marion had with Lucy and other women, the kind of public and official moral censure so strongly directed at John Wilson is almost entirely absent. To the public, it's almost as if sex and romance didn't even come into it, as if Marion did it all for the good fun and adventure of being a bloke. If you look at the memoir, that's how Marion passed it off anyway. So, thinking back to our pirate story, perhaps those ladies who wore trousers and pretended they were buff sailors wouldn't have wanted word to get out about it. And yet, when you uncover these stories... You get that idea that people sometimes had a greater degree of tolerance than we might expect. Lots of people seem to have lived cross-dressing lives and the ones we know about, some of them actually got away with it. Some of them probably just their friends thought, well, that's odd, but it's not my problem. Um, so there's, it's an indication that there's a great deal of diversity in public attitudes, but we can't get any closer to it than that. Well, that's the end of the episode. If you want to check out some photos from the story, they're on our Facebook page. Next time we have a special bumper size episode for you. It's a tribute to our favourite gloomy holiday. Halloween! So get ready for goosebumps. See you then. You can jump on our website at deadandburiedpodcast.com to explore the original evidence we use to build our stories and sign up to our mailing list for new story details. We'd love to hear your Melbourne history stories too, so drop us an email. And if you enjoyed the podcast, let everyone know with an iTunes review. Dead and Buried Podcast is supported by the City of Melbourne and brought to you by bornandbredhistoricalresearch.com.au. We love helping people with historical research, so get in touch.